you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 through 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Astarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and so does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you, have, that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we pray that you would descend upon your people in power today, as you already have. Through your word, we pray that Christ would be exalted. Um, we ask for clarity this morning. We ask that the Spirit of God might do a great work on our hearts, that he would convict, that he would comfort, and ultimately, as his primary role would be, is to exalt Christ in our hearts and in our lives unto our faith. And for that reason, we thank you, Father, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. We make it a prayer and a song today. Thank you for sending him to be our savior in our stead, to, f to fulfill that law and to bear that cross and to rise from the dead. What more could we say? What more could we sing today? but to utter our thanksgiving to you, Father, for your kindness to us, for saving the ungodly, 
for pursuing us as we were still sinners, as the scriptures teach, while we were still weak. This gospel, it is so precious, it is so otherworldly, it's absolutely divine. There's no other message like it. And so we ask, Father, for you to continue to bless your people through the preaching of the gospel this morning. Ride on, we pray. Spirit of God, ride on in our hearts and exalt Christ. Amen. Well, we are in our last sermon, our last message in the book of Colossians. Um, The title for today's message is A Call to Prayer, as you see in your liturgy, A Call to Prayer in a Company of Saints. This book has been about the incomparable Christ, how he is unrivaled and unequaled in his glory, his beauty, his majesty, and all of his attributes, our great Savior is incomparable. And that's what this letter has been about. I hope it has inflamed your love for him and um, increased your faith and trust in him. And this will be a book, like all of them, that are uh, missed as we continue on. So I pray that Colossians has blessed you these last couple of months. It has gone too fast. Would you agree? So a call to prayer and a company of saints this morning. That will be our outline this morning. Verses 2 to 6 is a call to prayer and a company of saints. Verses 7 to 18. Let's begin with a call to prayer. Note first how Paul encourages us how, how to pray. Just the first observation here in verse 2 on a call to prayer. How we should pray, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, Paul says. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And notice that first word, continue steadfastly. Devote yourself to prayer, Paul says. Be resolute. Don't give up, but continue in prayer steadfastly. When you don't feel it, when you don't want to, Paul says, continue in it. Be steadfast about the gift of prayer. And they need to look no further than their own minister. Drop your eyes down to verse 12 in Epaphras. This was the church planter of Colossae. This was the minister who stood before them and preached. He says, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. So the church didn't have to look very far to see someone steadfast in his prayer life. And Epaphras was such a man because he wanted this church to stand mature, Paul says, to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So this is a man who struggled in his prayer. This is a man who stood steadfast in his prayer. And Paul says in verse 13 of the same man, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. How did he work hard? Oh, beloved, he prayed for them. Again and again, he was steadfast in his prayer. 
It's been said of old that prayer is anvil work. Prayer is like putting your heart on an anvil and coming to it and just beating it and beating it and beating it until it is conformed into the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the hardest work there is as a Christian. And it certainly is anvil work. You put your heart on that anvil and you slay away at that heart until it conforms to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, beloved, don't you see you need to be steadfast in your prayer? Secondly, you need to be watchful in it. Be watchful, be alert, stay awake. You're reminded of our Lord in the garden in Matthew 26. And his disciples are sleeping and Jesus comes to them. And he says, watch and pray. Do you remember, beloved? Watch and pray. Lest you too fall into temptation. In Paul in Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit and keeping alert. This couplet of prayer and watchfulness is all over Scripture, and it's right here in front of us in Colossians 4. Be watchful in prayer. Why? Because there's so many ditches we can fall into and our own sin, into the sin of the outside. And so Paul is saying to this early church in Colossae and to us, be watchful of those teachers who says there is some spiritual fullness outside of Christ. Be watchful that there's, that there's fullness, a Christ plus life. No, true fullness, Paul says, is knowing Christ more and more. So be watchful and be steadfast. And then he says, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Isn't that odd? Paul's in prison. And he says, you know what? Don't forget to be thankful. Don't forget even my chains, but don't forget for your, on your sake to be thankful, beloved. What a word for the church today. So many reasons to be discontent. So many reasons you hear about this country decaying, and oh, it is. But I pray, beloved, we have a sense of the Apostle Paul right here, that we may always have a sense of thanksgiving in our hearts and upon our lips. The man was in prison for preaching the gospel, and he says, you know what, church? You need to, be rem you need to remember to be thankful. To have a heart of thanksgiving in your life. The Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 4. That in whatever situation he learned to be content. You remember this? Philippians 4, 7, he says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How did Paul have the sense of the peace of God, and how did he learn to be content in his life? I want that. You want that? We'll turn to Philippians 4. Philippians 
Philippians 4.11, you see there, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses understanding. These are the things we want. But look at the verse right before it in verse 6. What leads to this peace of God and the secret of contentment? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be known, be made known to God. You want to have a deep abiding contentment in Christ about this life, about this world? Do you want to have the peace of God surround your life and embedded in your heart? Beloved Paul says, get on your knees and pray steadfastly. Be watchful in it and never forget to be thankful for what God is doing in his church and in your life. So Colossians 4 again, Paul then instructs us not only how we should pray, but what we should pray for, what we should pray for. Verse verse 3, at the same time, Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So the first thing that Paul prays for or wants this church to pray for, wants you to pray for, that God may open a door to us for the word. Paul says, pray for me that God would pave a way for the gospel. I beg you, Paul says, pray that the word would would go forth and have full reign and full course in my life and in my ministry. Pave a way for the word, Paul says. And I have to wonder, as Paul is in prison here, sometimes I wonder what was written first, Philippians or Colossians, because in Philippians chapter 1, we're told, you can go there, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I wonder if Colossians was written first and that prayer of Colossians was actually answered. Don't you know? Maybe this letter that Colossians was sent to them and they read chapter 4 about this prayer to open a door for the word and maybe that, that church read that chapter and prayed, God, even while Paul's in prison, open a door for the word. And now in Philippians, we see that the whole imperial guard is hearing the gospel from Paul. Nothing seems to be too hard or too difficult for prayer. J.C. Ryle writes, prayer opened the Red Sea Prayer brought water from the rock and bread from heaven. Prayer made the sun stand still. Prayer brought fire from the sky on Elijah's behalf. Prayer overthrew the army of Sennacherib. Prayer healed the sick. It raised the dead. It has procured the conversion of souls. Prayer and faith can do anything, Ryle says. Nothing seems impossible when a man has the spirit of adoption. 
So Paul says, pray that a word of the gospel might be opened for me and for you. So Colossians 4, again, he says, pray that the door would be opened and that I may declare Christ to the people. And then he says in verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Interesting request, isn't it? Here's the Apostle Paul asking this church to pray for his preaching. Paul is quite credentialed, don't you think? He has the most formidable theological mind you could have. He has the missionary life laid on the anvil. He's done it all. And he says, you know what? I still want you to pray that my preaching would be clear. So that people don't walk away and think, what was Paul's point? (laughs) Pray that Colossians, that these people might hear the preaching and not be confused about who and what Christ is all about. Spurgeon said on his behalf, and To his congregation, may God help me, he said, if you cease to pray for me. That's what he told his congregation. Let me know the day, and I will cease to preach. Beloved, Paul says, pray. Pray for my preaching. Spurgeon understood that the ministry of the church is not a ministry of a man. If we cease to pray, and be dependent upon Christ, we cease to live. The ministry of the church is not a ministry of a man. It is the ministry of the Spirit of God descending upon his people in power and in clarity and conviction and comfort that they might treasure Christ. The ministry of the church is the ministry of God, not of a man. And though how I pray, we become such people. That you pray for the preaching in this church. That whatever man stands behind God's desk, you have prayed for him. We have all heard stories, and maybe we have engaged in some of them, where there is complaining and grumbling about your pastor's preaching. He's not deep enough or he's not passionate enough. May those conversations turn and say, oh, may we pray for him now. You don't like his preaching? Pray for him. He's not deep enough? Pray for him. He's not passionate enough? Pray for him. Don't leave. Pray. And so Paul says in verse 5, I want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is what Paul is getting at. This is how he wants to live. He wants his speech to be seasoned with grace as he proclaims the gospel to these people. So what does he need to do? He needs to pray. This is, but this is what Paul is getting at. 
We want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So bend the knee so that your speech, your life is seasoned with salt. It's seasoned with grace. Even in godly confrontation with the world. We don't have a license to be jerks. (laughs) No. Let your speech always, always, always be gracious. So goes the call to prayer, Calvary. And I pray we become such people at this church that we above all things depend upon God the Spirit. That we would not rest on our loins of being reformed or having liturgy or any of that thing. Yes, all that is great and good. But may we above all things be a people who are absolutely dependent upon God to descend upon this place and fill it with his presence for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. So goes the call to prayer, the company of saints, verses 7 to 18. What I want to do here is I just want to point out uh, four traits that I think this company possesses or embodies. The first trait is trustworthiness. This company was a, a trustworthy people. Verse 14, Luke, the, the beloved physician, uh, greets you. So this is the same Luke who walked the Lord, or who walked with Paul, sorry, from his second missionary journey onward. On the rest of Paul's life, that Luke was with him. Luke was with Paul through the thick and the thin, the joys and the trials, the hardships. Luke was always there, and he calls him, Paul does, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. I guess when you get old, you want a doctor around, right? And he's like, I'm so thankful that Luke is there. But beyond my health, I'm so thankful because he's a beloved brother. You see the warmth, you see the affection here. That inside the trustworthiness that Luke possesses, There is a fondness, a a loveliness about him, a warmth. Paul says, I just love this man. I want him always around me. And Luke was always with Paul. And then you see Nympha in verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. It takes trustworthiness to host a house or to host a public gathering. Of worship. And here Nympha is. She's opening up her home to, to house this church at Laodicea. The preparations, the meals, perhaps, the communication. Paul trusts her to be this woman to open her home that God might be glorified and Christ exalted. And so Nympha shows herself to be trustworthy. But lastly, beloved, look at verse 7 and and Tychicus. What a trustworthy man. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So Tychicus, 
He's going to carry this letter, the Colossians, to the church at Colossae. And he's going to tell them all about Paul's activities, what he's been up to, the gospel preaching, the trials, the joys, all of it. Paul entrusts Tychicus with this letter, this divine letter, that these saints in Colossae would have it and read it and meditate upon it. He says in verse 8, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Part of being trustworthy is this responsibility to edify, to encourage, to build up. And Paul says, go, Tychicus, you're one of my best men, but I want to send my best men, so go and tell this young church all about what we are and how we are. And with him, Onesimus. Onesimus, you remember, is Philemon's runaway slave. So there's the church at Colossae, and rounding the corner is Tychicus and Onesimus. And perhaps Philemon is in the congregation that day. And so Tychicus walks in with this letter. And there's Philemon and there's Onesimus. Unresolved conflict, probably. And Paul says, Tychicus, I'm sending you not only to be the courier of this letter, but to reconcile the conflict between Philemon and Onesimus. He's a trustworthy man. All these saints, they were trustworthy. Second, look at the diversity that you see here. This company of saints was diverse. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who was called Justice, and here's the phrase, beloved, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. They're Jewish Christians. They're among the circumcision. And here they are, mingling and worshiping with Gentiles at Colossae and with Paul. There's a great diversity. There's racial and social and economic barriers coming down. We read earlier in our assurance of pardon, Ephesians 2, that that, that wall that's, that, that, that stood up against or in between Jew and Gentile is brought down in Christ, and they're one now in Christ. And these three brothers exemplify this diversity now, this, this oneness in the gospel that they share in Christ you got to hand it to these men, don't you? Jewish Christians worshiping with Gentiles. Th- those were the dirty people, the filth. But oh, they saw Christ as that promise to Abraham, that seed of Abraham. And now they look at their Gentile brothers as true brothers, not as filth anymore. And so there's this great oneness, yet great diversity among this church or these people of God, even in the first century. Makes you think of Revelation 7. What a beautiful sight, is it not? 
that from a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, people, and language will all surround the throne singing praises, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. All kinds of people, wealthy people, poor people. And Paul says that's beginning even now. It's even now. We don't all make the same amount of money. Some of you look different than me or the person sitting next to you. And yet that's the beauty, is it not? That's the wonder of the gospel. Poor and rich alike, black and white, all that is brought down in Christ for his sake and for the good of the church. Third, this company of saints was quite imperfect. They were imperfect. Onesimus, we mentioned in verse 9, he's a runaway slave. He has some kind of conflict with Philemon that he bolts. But more than that, look at verse 10 again. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is the same John Mark in Acts 13 that abandoned Paul and Barnabas after the first missionary journey. Paul or Mark went home and Paul says, you know what? I have no use for Mark right now. I'm taking Silas with me. And Barnabas takes John Mark and does and does their thing. And here in Colossae, you see it. There's reconciliation. There's there's imperfection. But there's reconciliation. Paul says to this young church, you know, Mark used to bolt on me. But now he says, I want you to welcome him. If he comes to you, welcome him. We've all done things, said things that we regret. We're a bunch of imperfect people. But that's not the end of the story, according to the Apostle Paul. He says, I want you to welcome him. May we likewise be a reconciled people, even among our differences and our imperfections, and there are many in this church. May we be such people who reconcile and we welcome each other for the sake of Christ. And lastly, this was a suffering company. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I want you to remember my change, Paul says. Remember the cost of being a Christian. Remember that I'm writing this letter to you from prison. Remember that I really did nothing wrong, but, but preached the gospel, Paul says. And I want you to remember my change because one day, Colossae, this might be you you too might find yourself in chains. You too might find yourself as nothing wrong except preaching Christ, but all of a sudden you're thrown in jail. Remember my chains. Don't you, don't you, the statement in 2 Corinthians 11, 
just shocking every time I read it. 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, danger, danger. It's like Paul's second middle name is danger. And he says, remember my chains, Calvary, because this might be you. All those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul says, don't forget the cost. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when people revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of insults against you, Jesus says, rejoice. (laughs) We are and may be one day a suffering company. And yet, be thankful. Be thankful for what God is doing in his church through the gift of trial. So Colossians is over. Let me give you six brief points of conclusion. Number one, Get a company of saints around you to comfort you and challenge you. Get a company of saints around you to comfort you, as Paul did, and to challenge you, as Paul did. Second, continue in prayer. Continue to be dependent for your own sake and for the sake of this church. Never forget that's all we are. Like Spurgeon said, let me know the day you cease to preach for the preaching and I'll stop preaching. Three, put on Christ. Thank you, Robert. Kill sin. Thank you, Robert. Put on Christ. Kill sin in the home and in the church. Put on Christ. Four, thank you, Brandon, be more dead. Be more dead to the approval of others and walk and live in the freedom you have in Christ. Five, understand that true spiritual fullness is not going beyond Christ but knowing Christ better and better. Isn't that wonderful? The Christian life is not all that complicated. The scriptures display Christ 
for our eyes of faith to see. And it says, behold him. Know him. Trust him. Love him. The Christian life is not Christ plus fill in the blank. It's Christ. And knowing him better and better. And lastly, six. If you didn't hear anything today, hear this. Rejoice and rest in your union with Christ. That is the heartbeat of this letter. That the incomparable Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who created all things visible and invisible, this unequaled, unrivaled Savior, has by grace alone come to you and adopted you to be his and placed you with what we call union with him that is unbreakable and unshakable. You will never be unjustified. Isn't that amazing? You can never unjustify yourself because you have union with this incomparable Christ. So rejoice and rest in him. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we, we ask that we might set our eyes on Christ more and more all of our days. And we praise you and thank you for this little letter to the Colossians. And we pray that Christ, through this letter, becomes more and more precious to us. And by faith, he transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. 